This is the Life Church Podcast. For more messages, to watch our live stream, or to find other events, go to lifechurchnow.org. Amen. Well, you know, uh, I'm, I'm super excited about what God is doing. And in a season like this, 2020, where there have been a lot of uh, challenges for, for the church in general, a lot of challenges globally, obviously, all across the world, there's challenges. You've got a pandemic, you've got, uh, you know, a lot of racial injustice happening. You've got, obviously, we're in the middle of a, we're not in the middle, we're just about, you know, 10 days, have an election. And so all of these things have stirred up the pot, you know, in, in us. And, and so it's kind of, it seems kind of weird to say, yeah, I'm really excited. Because that's not really an emotion that people are feeling these days. Like, I'm excited. Most people are saying, yeah, this, is, this, this, this year really stinks. And everything stinks. And my life stinks. And my job stinks. And every, that's, where, that's where most people are right now. But what I'm excited about is the fact that None of this, none of this that we're going through has caught God by surprise. That we live in a world, we, in a world that is a, there's a lot of what ifs and ups and downs and all that. But the reality is, is that we have a, a God who's not just our savior, he's our king. And by the fact that he is our king, he's also ruler of this world. He rules everything that we are in the world. And we can put our trust in our king, that he has everything really under control, even though from our vantage point, it seems completely out of control. But God is truly in control. And that that idea, that understanding that God is king and that he is in control sometimes fades from our thinking, doesn't it? Too often we are faced with realities around us and we, we forget that he's king. We forget that he's in control. We forget that he has, he has your life in his hands and he's not going to let you go. Then every once in a while we come back to this reality that he is our king. And when we understand that he is our king, man, that gives me excitement. That tells me, God, you've got something going on that I don't know about because you're king. Obviously, you know everything. I don't. But you've got something going on I don't know about, but I... I can, I can rejoice and be excited in what you have in store for us. You've not forsaken your church. You are a good father. You are a, a father who, who loves your children. And so just in case you walked in here this morning and you are feeling maybe a little bit isolated, a little bit hurting, maybe a little bit broken, maybe a little bit discouraged or depressed, Can I just ask you to just turn your affection, turn your eyes towards Jesus and let him begin to fill you with the joy and the peace and the fulfillment that only he can give. Amen? Let's try for a moment, at least for the next 30 minutes that we're here, let's try for a moment, and my prayer is that you would do it all the time, is to take our eyes off the world around us and put our eyes on Jesus and watch what happens. Watch how he doesn't necessarily change all the circumstances around you, but how he gives you new perspective, new understandings, new way of seeing the world, faith that you didn't have before, encouragement that you didn't have before when you basically fix your gaze on him. Amen? All right, that's uh, sermon number one. Now let me go to sermon number two. (laughs) I wasn't planning on talking about that, but... We've been in a series called Mixed Emotions, and today we're actually finalizing the series. We're ending the series. We've been talking about how to biblically manage 
our feelings. Now, what we landed on is that our feelings are not bad. It's not like there's good feelings. It's not like there's right feelings and wrong feelings, okay? Uh, that, that you feel what you feel. And maybe you grew up where you were told, you can't feel that way. Don't feel that way. Feel this way instead. And you fought, you fought back at that because you realize, I tried. I'm trying to not feel that way. But the more I try to not feel that way, the more I feel that way. And it's just it's this endless cycle. So the reality is that our feelings in themselves are not bad. It's not so much what are you feeling. The question is, where are those feelings taking you? That's really the question we've been addressing. And we've been using this sign here. We've got like a road sign, like a fork in the road kind of sign, that your feelings can take you one way or can take you another. They can, if you're struggling with shame, they can take you towards isolation, depression, secrecy. And so you wander around in this nebulous world of nobody knows what's going on inside of me because I can't let anybody know because I feel so ashamed of that. Or... You can surrender it to God and allow God redeem that shame and it take you to a place of forgiveness, of grace, of joy and fulfillment that only can happen through Jesus Christ. So we've been talking about, the question is, where are the feelings that we are expecting, the emotions that we have, where are they taking us, right? And so I've talked to you about the van of shame. We've talked about the van of shame. I was going to show these pictures, but I, I got too lazy to actually put all the pictures up, but... We talked about the van of shame. We talked about the Buick Electra of anxiety. Remember my Buick Electra that I just never knew when it was going to run out of gas. So I was constantly white knuckle driving that, that vehicle because I was afraid that at any minute, because it was, it drank like five gallons, five miles. It got like, got like five miles a gallon, you know? And so it's just like this white knuckle experience of driving. It's this anxiety, this fear, like everything is out there, you know? So we talked about that, the, the Buick Electra of of anxiety. And then last week we talked about the Ford Escort of busyness that, you know, we get in that vehicle and I talked about my friend Alfredo from Harvard College who, who bought a basic, a brand new 2002 Ford Escort and drove it nonstop 30,000 miles and never changed the oil. And then one day it just locked up on them, you know, and too often, that's what we do in our busyness, right? We're just, we're going, going, going. We never stop to rest. Then the reason we don't stop to rest is because we're chasing after something. We're chasing after this notion, this idea that we lack something. We're missing out on something, and I can't stop until I get what I'm looking for, until I get what I lack. And so I go, and 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 I go. And then sometimes we get to a place where we actually get the thing that we thought we were lacking, only to discover that we actually lack something else. And then we go and go and go and go until we get that. And so last week we talked about this and said, well, what you do is you invite Jesus into the Ford Escort of busyness. And the first thing that he does, he slams on the brakes. He slows things way down. And he gets us to start living in a certain rhythm. God calls us to live in a certain rhythm of life that involves and includes weekly rest, daily rest. And so God wants to redeem our emotions. That's where we've been. Today I'm going to talk about an emotion that is sometimes called a secondary emotion. For the, those of you in the field of psychology and all that, you know this. I had to read about it. I didn't know about it, but I've discovered it. It's called a secondary emotion because all other emotions have a tendency of manifesting this way. 
and it's the emotion of anger. Anger. I know that I'm not talking to anybody in this room that struggles with this emotion. None of you. I know. I'm the only one that struggles with anger in this room. But it's the emotion of anger, right? Now, people have, uh, professional people have illustrated anger like, like an iceberg. Go ahead. We'll have this image of an iceberg that too often when we see somebody who, who lashes out, gets angry, punches a wall, screams and yells, what we see is this anger, that's what we see is above the surface. It's called a secondary emotion because really there's so much more behind the anger. There's so much below the surface that we do not see. And so they get angry and truly what's happening is that there's really other things that are feeding the anger. So for example, as a child, you, maybe you were abandoned or you were rejected by a parent or rejected by somebody you cared about and loved. And you got hurt. And so you become bitter and you become mean and you become angry. That's the stuff that we see above, but really what's below it is the hurt from the rejection. And you've decided you'll never be hurt like that again. You'll never be abandoned that way again. You will, you refuse it. So you're gonna just be mean and bitter and angry. And that's what people see, but really what's the problem is the rejection and the hurt that's below the surface. And so in this series, we've been looking at different Psalms. Today, we're going to look at an angry psalm. There are angry psalms, by the way. Uh, In fact, this is a psalm of David, and he's going to say some things that are going to make you feel a little uncomfortable. (laughs) You know, these angry psalms are called, they're called imprecatory psalms. Um, It's like a whole group of psalms that that are called imprecatory, and imprecatory just literally means curse, curses, curse or curses. And so when you read through the Psalms, and maybe you've done this, like you're reading through the Bible and you come to the, you're reading in the Psalms and you come to these Psalms, and you're like, what in the world? And you're like, let me just flip the pages. I don't want to read this stuff because it's just, it's just nothing but curses, nothing but negative stuff being said. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to read a Psalm of David. Um, you know, in church, we don't tend to read imprecatory Psalms or you know, these angry Psalms. We'd rather read Psalms like, uh, you know, that are of thanksgiving and of praise and of, of happiness and worship. Those are the, songs that we want, the psalms that we want to read. But you have to understand that these psalms are in the Bible for a reason. And I'm so thankful that they're in the Bible. Because too often we can think of our Christian life as this, this constant high. Like it's nothing but praise and worship and thanksgiving and joy and peace. I'm a Christian and it's nothing but praise and thanksgiving. But you find here King David who actually, you know, was a man after God's own heart and yet he has these angry moments in his life. And that makes me feel a little bit better about myself that I sometimes have some angry moments in my life. I'm not justifying it, but I'm just saying at least I'm not an anomaly, what I love about this is that it actually represents a part of David's relationship with God. That we come to God with the times that we're so excited and we're filled with joy and peace and we are thankful for a raise at work or we're thankful for this new child into our family or thankful for the the loving relationship that I might have with my wife or or you might have with your, your husband. We're thankful for those things. But that that's not the only time we come to God. We can also come to God when we're angry, when something's been done against us. And that's what these psalms represent. They represent David taking his anger to God, being honest with God 
about how he feels. And that's really what we've been talking about in this series, is learning to be honest with God about what we're feeling. So I encourage you to be that way. In Psalm 109, we're going to read Psalm 109. <clears throat> Last week, as a reminder, I left you, Dave, we left David lying in, in green pastures and near quiet waters. Today, David is triggered. I mean, you ever been triggered? Okay, I told you, you guys never get angry. I've been triggered, okay? So David's talking about his enemy here, Psalm 109, starting with verse 8. He says, let his years be few. This is David talking to God. Let his years be few. Let someone else take his position. May his children become fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander as beggars and be driven from their ruined homes. I mean, he's specific here. May creditors, <laughs> like he's calling the, he's calling, you know, the banks on them, you know, foreclose on loan. May creditors seize his entire state. The strangers and strangers take all, all he's earned. Let, be, let no one be kind to him. Let no one pity his fatherless children. May all of his offspring die. Wow. Like David, something's wrong, right? That's where you would like leave the room. You don't want to be around David right now. I mean, this is, he's, he's praying. He's like, he's like, I hope he loses his job. I hope he dies. I hope his kids suffer. I hope he has no friends. I hope his kids have no friends. I hope his kids die. In Jesus' name, amen. That's the prayer. Now, I've, you know, I've read Psalms, and, you know, we read Psalms too. Sometimes when we had smaller kids, we read some of the Psalms to our kids, you know. Like I remember maybe reading Psalm 23 to our children, but I've never read Psalm 109 to our kids at night. It just like, wow, David, what's going on, right? He's angry. Now, one thing we need to take note here, that David is angry. He's praying this to God. You understand, David's a warrior. He is a warrior with an army. He's a king. Everything he was asking of God, everything he was asking of God, he could actually do. He could have gone over and taken care of business with the person that he was angry with. He had an army, but he doesn't. And that's the illustration for us today. What do we do with our anger? So what David does, by, by way of illustration, is he takes it to God. He takes it to God, and that's really the challenge for us. So I've been trying to think of, you know, what vehicle would, would you know, we've been using vehicles. So you saw my van of shame. We talked about the Ford Escort of busyness. We talked about my Buick Electra of, of anxiety. And so I was trying to think, what, what vehicle would, kind of, would we put David in that would represent anger? And the only thing I could think of was a vehicle that I drove in Tucumcari, New Mexico, back in 1985, I have an image of a vehicle here. I'm going to put this one up. This is not it, by the way. This is a, I think this is, a, this is a vehicle in Pakistan. It looks like a Pakistani vehicle or something. Um, but if you see how the vehicle is, it's all beat up, different colors. It's like a whole side is missing, you know. And it's just a, it's just a, a work delivery truck. And I drove this, I, don't, I, n I never took a picture of it. I don't even know what the make and model was of it. But I drove this really beat up uh, ranch farm truck in Tucumcari, New Mexico. I spent a month in Tucumcari, New Mexico in 1985. And uh, it, was, it was terrible. It was terrible. Um, I, you know, 
you would, it, it was so out of alignment that if you were driving, wanted to drive straight, you had to get in there, start the thing up, put it in gear, and then you had to yank on the wheel and keep the wheel pulled to the left so they could go straight. That's how bad out of alignment it was. Like if you let off the wheel, it would just take you, it'd make like a sharp right turn. And then it was, it was, you know, there was like, it, it must have needed a, a water pump or something. It was just constantly going overheating. And so, and so we would drive it, you know, about a mile and then the needle would start going. And one of the ranch guys with me was like, hey, it's getting hot. Let's t- pull over. So we pull over, turn it off, wait a little while, turn it back on, drive it for a little while, get hot again, pull out. You know, we just did that the whole time I was there. It, it, the vehicle was in such bad shape that the foreman's, the ranch foreman's wife, when she found out that the, 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 the ranch guy was telling me, hey, uh, Rick, Richard, you drive the vehicle. We're going to drop some hay off along this fence line. You drive the vehicle. I was, she, she blurted out. She said, no. It's like she was terrified. of the, she, she was so afraid of that vehicle. She didn't feel like it was safe. She never would get in it. And I think this is what it's like to live with some of you, right? Those around you, they don't feel safe. You're always overheating. They don't really want to be around you too much because they feel like you're going to drive them off into the ditch. They just don't feel safe. And this is where David is in Psalm 109. He's just angry, just angry. He's overheating. Not exactly sure who he's talking about here, but theologians think he's talking about a guy named Nabal. And so David meets this guy named Nabal, and we'll read in 1 Samuel chapter 25. He has this encounter with Nabal. And so just by way of context, just to let you know about where we are right now, um, David is going to be king, but he's not king yet. And so he's like rolling with like 600 battle-tested warriors. He's just going from cave to cave. He's kind of hiding out from Saul. And this is where he's at right now. This is the life that he's in. And he meets this guy named Nabal. So in 1 Samuel verse 20, chapter 25, verse 2, it says, A certain man in Maon who had a property there at Carmel was very wealthy. So it identifies this guy as very wealthy. He had 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep which he was shearing in Carmel. So he's shearing the sheep, which is kind of like a ce- celebration time. It's a festive time. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent woman, but her husband was surly and mean in, in, in his dealings. In fact, the name Nabal means fool, and so he's described as this foolish, angry, dishonest, manipulative kind of guy. Verse 4. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep, so he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you. Okay, so David's greeting in, the name, in David's name. He's being greeted. Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all the, that is yours. Now I hear that it's sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were, were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time that they were in Carmel, at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants, talking about David and, his, and, his, and, and these guys he sent, please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. So David's making his case. He's being humble. He's being very respectful. He says, listen, we've been good neighbors. You know, like I've got 600 warriors with me. They sometimes can be a little hangry, you know, like they can be hungry and angry, but none of your sheep ever disappeared. 
They never took it. In fact, we actually took care and protected your flock. And so will you, if you have anything to spare, will you give us something? That's what David's, that's his appeal. Verse 9, when David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, who is this David? Very disrespectful. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Okay, so he's like questioning. He knows who David is, right? But he's like speaking down to him. Many servants, listen to this, okay? Now, David's a king, really. This is what he says. Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. He's like, he's not a king. He's a servant. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give to men coming from who knows where? So he approaches David. He responds to David's request in a very demeaning way. Now, culturally speaking, this was very, very offensive. When we were in Bangladesh as missionaries, there was ways that you could be very offensive to people. I was riding a rickshaw once. I was on a rickshaw once, and we have you know, a person who, who pedals the rickshaw, and I was sitting in the back, and then I was in this really, really congested, busy area, and I remember um, there... Uh, we were, we were taken off from what was called New Market. We were taken off, and these rickshaws were coming in from this other street, you know, like hundreds of them. They're coming in, and we kind of merge like this into the street. You know, it's just very, very congested, very, very busy. And this one rickshaw comes up, and he runs into our rickshaw, okay? And so we're kind of like, they're kind of like pedaling and arguing with each other, the two drivers, the two ride, the peddlers. They're arguing with each other about, you know, bumping into each other. The passenger, I'm just sitting back. The passenger in the other rickshaw starts yelling at my rickshaw driver, and they just go back and forth. You know, finally, we separated. They kept going. We're behind them. And then the passenger in the other rickshaw that ran into us, he steps up, pulls his sandal off of his foot, and then turns around and does like this, just faced, showed the sandal to us, like in our direction. I'm like, okay. That's what I thought. But... (laughs) I didn't realize that was so, so, so offensive. My rickshaw driver abandoned his rickshaw. <laughs> G- took his, his, they wear these things called lungis, like a little skirt. He tucked that thing up, pulled his, sh- his sandals off, and ran full blast to the other rickshaw, jumped on there, and then just got into a fist fight with a passenger of that rickshaw because he showed him the bottom of his sandal. I lear- later learned that, you know, that's like flipping the bird. In our context, you know, I didn't realize that, you know. But it was very, very offensive. And this is exactly what Nabal is doing. He's offending David, intentionally offending David. Now, he may be used to treating people like this, but David's not used to it. And so David responds in verse 12. David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, each of you, (laughs) each of you strap on your sword. Because we're just going to go practice out in the, in the courtyard. No, that's not what he... Each of you strap on your swords. So they did, and David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up and with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. So he has these 600 men, 400 of them put on their swords, and they're going to do... They're going to take care of business. They're angry. There's like these four levels of anger, like annoyance, frustration, level two, level three, hostility. Level four would be rage. 
And I would think that, you know, before this happened, David was probably somewhere between, you know, between frustration and hostility. Like he's with 600 men out in the wilderness. He's already living on edge to some extent. And then this happens. And I mean, David, whatever, whatever strap on your sword's level is, that's what David's at. He's angry and there's going to be violence and there's going to be bloodshed. He's mad. He's very angry. Now, the Bible doesn't say it's a sin to be angry, but it does say not to sin in your anger. And so we're talking about anger. What do we do with the emotion of anger? David, David was going to go take some lives. There are different crossroads that we come to when we get into this vehicle of anger. And so the first one I want to talk about, the first crossroad is when we get angry, we can either react or we can respond. We can either react or we can respond. David reacts when he hears this from Nabal. Strap on your swords. We're going to take some lives today. That's what he's doing. He's reacting to that response. He expresses it, this, his anger, in, in, in a way that's very, very aggressive. He's overheating. He's, 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 you know, and you're going to know about it. He's so mad, you're going to know about it. And that's where some of you are, right? In fact, some of you might be known maybe by your spouse or by a coworker, about, by your anger. You're just angry. And they know you that way. You punch walls, you curse, you yell, you scream. And that's how you're known. You're just angry. Others of you, you're angry, but you don't act out in aggression. You're more like passive-aggressive. Like you don't get mad or angry and punch walls or say things, but what you do, the way you express your anger is you withhold, withhold affection, you withhold attention, you withhold encouragement. Being passive-aggressive aggressive tends to be the, the favorite, favored way of, of Christians expressing their anger because you can be mean and with a smile on your face. pastor says something that really offended me. And, uh, hey, how are you doing? I'm doing great, pastor. But I never talked to you. I never, I'm just not going to stay away from you. I'm not going to go back to church. Passive aggressive. Like if they come to you and they say something like, hey, <clears throat> you know, I hope, I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but when somebody starts a sentence off that way, it's very likely that you're going to take it the wrong way. Even though they say, I hope you don't take it the wrong way, but... And so David reacts, you know, some people get sarcastic, some people stonewall, some people, you know, just shut people out and kind of give them the silent treatment. David reacts and he says, strap on your swords. And so when he gets angry, he reacts. And sometimes when we get angry, we react. And I understand that. It's natural. All of us just react to that. But I think what the Bible would, t- would t- tell us is that we would thoughtfully respond instead. Instead of getting angry and punching a wall or yelling or cursing somebody out, that we would just thoughtfully think about it, respond to that, right? Like the message of Scripture is not no anger. The message of Scripture is slow anger. James tells us that, you know, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. So it's this idea of responding instead of reacting, right? 
So David's angry. He's on his way with 400 armed men. Meanwhile, in verse 14, it says this. One of the servants told Abigail, that's Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greeting, but he hurled insults at them. Yet those men were very good to us, talking about David's men. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, they were a wall around us the whole time we were herding the sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. And I think that's really the problem sometimes with people around you. You're an angry person, and well, nobody can talk to you. They just want to they stay away from you because they feel like you're, you're too sensitive or you overreact. And, and you might say, well, nobody's ever told me I'm too sensitive and overreact. Well, it's because you're too sensitive and you overreact and nobody's ever told you that. So Abigail seems to understand that David, how David's going to respond to this. So this is what he says, says in verse 18. Abigail acted quickly. She took 500 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five measured measures of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisin, 200 cakes of pressed figs. I have no idea what cakes of pressed figs and cakes of raisins are, but they don't sound tasty at all. And loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband the ball. See what Abigail, she's brilliant. She's brilliant. And we're going to discover that she's really, really brilliant. What she does is she sends her servants ahead with food. It's amazing what food can do. You know, sitting around in a meal with somebody to actually just, instead of reacting to what they've done, responding to what they've done. Verse 20. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, okay, so get the mental image here. She's going to meet David. David's going towards where they're at. And as David's approaching her, David has been just talking, whether he was talking out loud or he was telling himself internally, he had just said, it's been useless All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing, he has paid me back evil for good. This is what's got David angry. It's an injustice. I've done nothing but good. I've helped this guy out. I've taken care of his flock. I've done, I've done, I've bent over backwards for him, and now he repays me with this, with this insult. And he sees it as injustice. The Bible talks about righteous anger, and it's easy to look at this and say, maybe this is righteous anger. But see, there's a key characteristic to righteous anger, and that is that you don't get angry when you're personally offended. Righteous anger isn't that person, that other Christian says something to me, and now because that person says something to me, uh, I'm righteously angry at them. That's not righteous anger. Jesus was angry. He had righteous anger, but his anger wasn't because he was treated poorly. His anger was because somebody who was vulnerable and weak was treated poorly. That's righteous anger. So David might think that his anger is righteous, but it's a different kind of anger. It comes from personal offense. So Abigail comes up on David while he's kind of rehearsing this in his mind of what has been done to him. He's kind of justifying the violence that he's about to do. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, 
she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She does what is really, really hard to do. And some of you couples in this room, you understand what I'm talking about. Like my wife and I, we've argued, and there's been times that we've argued about like the, the dumbest thing. Like it, it turned into like we didn't talk for each other for talk, talk to each other for a whole day, and it started out with a disagreement on the color of a cup. It didn't have to go there. It didn't have to turn into isolation and withholding affection and, and you know, snuffing each other and all that. It didn't have to go there because we didn't do, we, it, did, it did go there, but the reason it went there is because we didn't do what Abigail did. She humbles herself. She doesn't fight back. She simply humbles herself. Right? It says, verse 24, she fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool. And folly goes before him, goes with him. See him, David, please don't react. She goes on in verse 28 to say something just so, so brilliant. She wants David to see the bigger picture. She wants David to understand that, that history has been written right now, that David is the anointed of God, that there's a plan and purpose for his life, and that the history has been written, and that she, he needs to reflect. He needs to think about what he's about to do because it's going to be written into history. Sometimes we need to remember that, don't we? Verse 28, the Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord. Because you fight the Lord's battles, and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. So she's affirming that he is the Lord's servant, that he's got a mission and a calling on his life. He's to be the next king of Israel. And then she goes on, verse 31, don't let this be, this insult, this thing that you're about to do, don't let this be a blemish on your record. How many of you would agree with me that if you look back at those moments where you got really angry, you, just, you don't want, really want to talk about them. They're kind of like a blemish on your record, aren't they? They're kind of like a, like, man, I'm just ashamed of even bringing that up. I mean, it's taken me years to be able to, I mean, in fact, it has to be years for me. To, for years have to pass before I can actually get up here and say, yeah, there was a time that I did this because I'm so embarrassed about that. And sometimes I still am embarrassed about those things. He says, don't let this be a blemish on your record then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. The second crossroads that we see here is am I going to rehearse or am I going to reflect? Am I going to rehearse? Am I going to think about why I feel the way I do? Like we argued all day long and really it started out because a cup was, we disagreed on the color of the cup and I mean, why was I so angry about that? Why was I so angry about that? Or am I going to rehearse in my mind everything she said, what she said, how she said it, when she said it, how she said it, when she said it, everything she said, and just go over my mind? See, a lot of us have these DVRs in our brain where we, where we record all the offenses, all the insults, all the hurts, and they're in there. And then when I get angry with that person, I just press play, and I rehearse it. And I go over it, and I go over it, and I go over it, and I go over it. And that's exactly what David is doing. 
I mean, David, think about it. You've got an entire army. You're about to go wipe out a man and his whole family off the face of the earth. Why? Because he wouldn't give you the leftovers from his sheep shearing? Really? Is that the reason why? Is there another reason why you might be so angry, David? Maybe you're angry because you're just living in caves and going from cave to cave. You're running away from Saul. Saul is, is persecuting you, and, you, and you're, you're frustrated with Saul, but you can't really take it out on Saul, so Nabal's a good target. And too often what we do with our anger and frustration is we don't ask why. We just take it out on someone else, don't we? We transfer it. Like a couple years ago, I was on an elevator. Well, there was a person already on the elevator, and then I came up to the elevator to get on the elevator, and I pushed my button. I just kind of, you know, what you normally do in an elevator, you push your button, and you just go to the wall, you stand there, you know, wait till the elevator goes up. The guy was standing next to the buttons, and he was like pushing his floor, I don't know, three, number three, or whatever, just three, and the doors hadn't closed yet. Three, three, and he just starts banging on three, you know, and it's just not going fast enough, and the elevator's not, and you could tell he's red, and he's just angry, he's just, I don't know, maybe he had to go to the bathroom or something, he was just in a hurry, I don't know what was going on, but he was mad because the elevator just wasn't going fast enough. Well, probably wasn't the elevator, right? <laughs> probably was something else. What's interesting is that when so many, you know, some of these small things get us angry, you know, we overreact. We should step back and ask ourselves, why am I so angry over an elevator? I like what David does. It's interesting about David in Psalm 109. Um, he goes on this rant, like, God, take this guy out. Kill him. Kill his family. Kill everyone. You know, that's, that's where he's at, really. You know, he's just like, he's angry. But then there's this moment of vulnerability in verse 22. He says, for I am poor and needy. David's talking about himself. I am poor and needy, and my heart is full of pain. That's why I'm angry. David is realizing this. In his prayer, he starts off by telling God, God, this guy hurt me. This guy injured me. Take him out. But because he's taking it to God, because he's releasing it to God, something's beginning to happen inside of him. And he realizes the reason why I'm angry is not because of that guy. The reason I'm angry is because I'm poor and needy. My heart is full of pain. I think... The thing about an angry person, and they may know it or may not know it, is oftentimes their anger comes from something deeper. There's a hurt, there's a pain that, that below the surface on the, on the iceberg, that's what's at, where it's at. In fact, you've heard that term, hurt people, hurt people. You know, it manifests in anger, but oftentimes it's because that person who's angry, who's 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 lashing out, who's saying things. There's a brokenness, there's a hurt inside of them that hasn't been healed yet, that hasn't been released to God yet, that hasn't been given over to the Holy Spirit yet. So more often than not, the disproportionate anger that has nothing to do with what you actually see, it's something beneath the surface, right? So instead of rehearsing the thing that's made us angry, what we need is to step back and reflect. And ask ourselves, why am I so angry right now? That's a great tool, by the way. When something sparks you, pull back. Just pull back. Try, try your level best to pull back and say, why am I angry? What is it? I mean, it might be exactly what just happened. 
but at least you reflect on it. At least there's a, way, a better way of responding. Another thing Abigail does is seven times she brings God into the conversation, right? She talks about God's purposes. She talks about God's protection. Verse 29 says, even when you are chased by those who who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch. This is Abigail talking to, to King David. She's telling him, you're safe. You're protected, but the lives of your enemies will disappear like stones from a, from a, from shot from a sling. <clears throat> Abigail is brilliant here. She's trying, to, she's trying to talk David away from the cliff. She's trying to say, hey, see the big picture. See the big picture. And remember the fact that God is faithful. In fact, she uses a language, a stone shot from a sling. It's, a, it's a, like a memory trigger for, 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 for King David. Like, oh, yeah, I remember. I remember when I was a kid, just a teenager. I faced up this giant, and he could have taken me out in an instant. My knees were trembling, but God, you protected me back then. God, you can protect me now. You've got my back now. I think a third crossroad is, will I rage or will I release? Will I rage or will I release? Will I release this over to God? Now, when I say release, I don't mean ignore. I think too often that's the kind of Christian counseling that we get is you get angry and you're told, just ignore it. Pretend like it didn't happen. <laughs> that, that doesn't work. How many of you know that doesn't work? It doesn't work. When I say release, what I mean is you take it to God and you say, God, this is how I feel. I want to knock his head off. I want to take him out. I, I want him to suffer. I want him to hurt. But God, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna give that over to you because I don't feel like that's right. So I'm just gonna give that over to you. I'm gonna release it. This is really what Psalm 109 is all about. It's about David coming to God. You notice if you look at the transition in the, in the Psalm, David comes to God, he's angry. He tells God how he feels about this person. He wants him to, he wants him to die. But then David starts having this conversation with God and God begins to convince him that that's not the best way, that you really need to release it to me. And, and it moves to this place of really just giving it over to God. So when you're angry, you simply release that all to God. Look how the story ends. First Samuel 25, uh, 32 to 33. It says, David said to Abigail, this is David responding now after Abigail's talked about of, you know, David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment. So she has good judgment, right? <clears throat> and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Then David accepted from her, from her hand what she had brought him and said, go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your requests. And then the New Living Translation adds, we will not kill your husband. <laughs> I like that part. We will not kill your husband. Right? Maybe she wanted him to die. I don't know. <clears throat> so then Ab- Abigail goes home, and when she gets home, she realizes there's like this party going on, and, and Nabal is drunk. He's been drinking in the party, so she doesn't say anything to him. And then verse 37 says, Then in the morning, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things, and his heart failed him, and he became like a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So Nabal does die. 
And when the Lord heard, this, heard that, talk about David now, when he says the Lord here in this particular case, when the Lord heard that, talk about David, that Nabal was dead, he said, praise be to the Lord. <laughs> well, my prayer was answered. I didn't do it, but my prayer was answered, <laughs> right? You should read your Bible because there's a lot of really funny stories in the Bible. <laughs> Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong, and he's brought Nabal's wrongdoings down on his own head. Then David sent word to Abigail asking her to become his wife. <laughs> That's a smart man. I'm telling you, sto- read your Bible. There's a lot of really cool stories in the Bible. <clears throat> his servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent us to, to you to take you to become his wife. Verse 42, Abigail Quickly, notice that. Quickly. <laughs> she's, she's smart too. Abigail quickly got on a donkey and attended by her five female servants, went with David's messengers and became his wife. So David is out of alignment. David is overheating. David is angry. And in many ways, as a king, could feel justified in his anger and basically take Nabal's life out completely. But instead, God sends a messenger in the form of Abigail and helps him not react, but reflect. Helps him not to to rehearse the stuff, but basically to release it all to God. And David does that, surrenders surrenders everything to God and says, God, you take this. I can't do this. You need to do this. I love how Psalm 109 ends. Verse 30 says, but I will give you repeated thanks. I will give... I will give repeated thanks to the Lord, praising him to everyone, for he stands beside the needy. I love this. It's like, have you ever done this? I mean, maybe you have, where you're angry about something, you're frustrated about something, and, and you go to the Lord in prayer, and if you're honest with God, you tell God exactly what you're frustrated about, and you're just, you're just laying it all out there, and it sounds like you don't want anybody to hear you praying that way because it sounds so ungodly and so fleshly and so bad. But you start doing that, and God is a patient God, and he's listening in, and he's taking it in, and he's receiving what you have to say. And then as you're praying this, all of a sudden your heart begins to shift, and next thing you know, you find yourself feeling a little bit differently. And then by the end of the prayer, you realize, you know what, I came here, God, because that person over there, but God, I realize... I'm the one that needs you. And that's really what's, what's happening in this prayer. I will give repeated thanks to the Lord, praising him to everyone, for he stands beside the needy. That's me. Ready to save them, from, save them from those who condemn them. And in this prayer, David moves from anger and rage to worship. He surrenders his emotions over to God, and God redeems that emotion. I don't know what vehicle you might find yourself in today. Maybe it is anger. Maybe you've been hurt by somebody and you're just angry at them and you're withholding affection. You're, or maybe you're not even, maybe you're doing work, maybe you're just texting angry messages all the time. Maybe you're emailing that your boss in, in a passive-aggressive fashion. You know, I've, I get those emails all the time from my, from my staff. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, those emails, those passive-aggressive emails where they kind of like say, so I understand that we've, we've, we ha- we've decided to do this. 
Now, you know that, blah, 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 and they just go on and just rattle off all the things, you know. And so, but I'm thankful that we've decided to do this. And you're like, it doesn't sound like you're thankful that we decided to do this. It sounds like you're angry about this, right? But you're doing it in a passive-aggressive manner. I don't know if it's anger that you're dealing with. Some of you might be dealing with shame. You might be in that vehicle of shame right now, that van of shame, and you're just hiding behind everything. You don't want anybody to see you. You're living in isolation and in darkness. Some of you are just anxious. You're in that driving that Buick Electra of anxiety, and you just are white knuckled going through life, trying to figure out what, what's, what, what, what surprise is going to be around the corner next. And you're just full of fear and tension, and it's just it's spilling out all over you. And people around you just don't want to be around you because there's so much fear and tension in your life. Maybe you're just busy. You're in that Ford Escort of busyness. And you're going and going and going and going. Your family's way been left way behind. You just go, 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 go. And they're way back there saying, wait, wait. We can't keep up with this pace. It's going to, it's killing us. It's killing you. It's killing us. I don't know what vehicle you might be in right now. But whatever vehicle it is, invite Jesus in. He doesn't care either. He doesn't care if it's some rickety old van of shame or some rickety old truck. (laughs) He'll ride with you. He wants to ride with you. The one thing, though, the one requirement is that he gets to drive. He gets to drive. Your shame, your anger, your pain, your hurt, whatever it is, he gets to drive. Where you pull over on the side of the road and say, God, I can't do this anymore. I can't live this way anymore. My life is just going into the ditch or I'm, I'm, this is a terrible way to live. God, I need you to take over and you let him take it, get into the driver's seat of the vehicle and take you to a place of redemption, a place of freedom, a place of wholeness. That's really is how we deal with our emotions. You're going to feel them. In fact, let's all stand right now. You're going to feel them. They're going to come. And if you're not feeling them right now, if you're not angry right now, if you can say, I have a a track record of not being angry for the last couple of months, that's great. Don't worry, it's going to come. It'll happen. The question is, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to act it out? Are you going to run with it? Are you going to let release it over to God and let God take care of it? Are you going to invite Jesus into the driver's seat of your vehicle and basically surrender it all to him?